Welcome to Recommended Daily Dose, presented by Holy Name Medical Center. I am your host, Dr. Clinton Coleman, along with my esteemed colleague, Dr. Surid Sugar. We have an amazing guest today, Dr. Adam Jarrett, Chief Medical Officer of Holy Name Medical Center. You're listening to Recommended Daily Dose with Drs. Clinton Coleman and Surid Sugar, the not so average health show with a unique spin on what's making headlines in healthcare. What does a C- CMO do? That's a really good question. Um, you're also executive vice president. Yeah, it's, it's okay. the same title. It's two titles for the same. But thing. can you tell our listeners what a CMO? It's a two does? for one. Two for yeah. one. So a I, twofer. I think twofer. At, the, at the end of the day, I am responsible for uh, the medical care that takes place at Holy Name Medical Center. Day to day, I do a lot of physician recruitment. I work very closely with the chief nursing officer, who's responsible on the nursing side. Um, uh, I deal with, with trying to make healthcare as cost-effective as possible. Uh, one of the things that Holy Name is known for is its high-quality and yet cost-effective care. I'm a big believer that um, to provide high-quality care, you don't, it doesn't have to be expensive. In fact, uh, less expensive care is often more um, beneficial. Um, so that's, that's kind of it. I, I also deal with problems when they come up, unfortunately. This guy's a problem. Them. Speaking of problems, yeah, so yeah. you and uh, Dr. Sagar have a lot in common. So it's not right? just our good looks, uh, but actually... Or we, lack of hair. Or lack of hair. I was going to say balding is beautiful, as yeah. you know. Yes, yes. Yeah. You, you, you guys run. So and you, and you didn't guys didn't get the memo that running I, is, you know, we've evolved past running as uh, exercise. As a species? As a species, as a species right? So Adam, you have to help me because um, my esteemed colleague here has not seen the light and doesn't see the point in running. And I know that you're a, lar- a big runner. Well, part of it is it's, it's not, you know, it's not healthy, right? Uh, that's as far, deba- as, debatable. As, debatable. Okay. All right. But we've also we evolved to bicycling and Uber, right? So what's your thing with? running so um i think uh, exercise in general is very healthy i agree okay so we're on the same page page. there right and i think that you have to find something that you like to do um and if you like to run it and you do it the right way it is good for you um you don't have to run if you can bicycle you can elliptical you can play tennis you can jazzercise you can do jazzercise uber probably doesn't work dr coleman but you could give that a (laughs) jazz hands and so i i get excited by running i i actually um don't enjoy every moment that i'm out there on a run but i enjoy the concept of running and i enjoy the accomplishment of running and it's it's been a big part of trying to keep myself healthy. Although I have to tell you, you are right; it doesn't do great for my joints no, all I, the time. I definitely believe in exercise, but okay. I think you know running against something concrete is really hard in your joints, right? So, I, you you can't tell by looking at me, but I'm not like a, a runner, so I either oh, walk I can tell slowly. By, I, no, I can tell can by tell looking at you. you. We can tell okay. Susan walked in the room. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> so, so I, I actually don't disagree with you. I think that that. Running can be tough on your joints. In fact, I have some problems with my joints, right. and I run through it. Um, uh, you know, I started running sometime in my mid to late 30s, and um, but that was as a means to getting you know healthy. It was as a means to getting healthy, and and I and as something that in, in particular that prompted you to start at that age. Um, I, I was out of shape, um, uh, and I, I probably was challenged by someone who said you should do this, um, and I really got into it in my mid to late 30s. Um, I remember the first, I can vividly remember the first time I went out for a run and I literally could not run up my block, Mm. you know, and I I have a vivid memory of that. Um, And I remember uh, accomplishing my first 5K and I have vivid memories of that and how big a deal it was. And um, I actually stopped running 
So in my mid to late 30s, I ran a lot. I did a couple marathons. Um, I did uh, the New York Marathon and the Boston Marathon in my late 30s. And really enjoyed the accomplishment. Sure. You know, it, and, and actually enjoyed the training for it. But I started to have a lot of joint pain. And uh, saw actually my ex-partner, who's a rheumatologist, who said, you should stop running. Mm. Uh, and I did. Mm. Um, and I actually got, out of, got into terrible shape. Um, because even though other exercise... Um, is just as good as running. You got to like to do it. Right, right. So it was you weren't passionate about the other. I, I did. So you didn't I, stick with it, right? They said go bike, and I said, oh, yeah. and I bike a little bit, but I didn't feel the same way about sure. it, and I don't really love going to the gym. So I didn't, I, I didn't do it, and I put on a lot of weight, and I wasn't in good condition. Uh, and then about six or seven years ago, I kind of said, "Be damned." I went to see an orthopedic friend who said, "Yeah, you're going to need hip replacements someday, but you're going to need them someday, no matter what you do." And you're not going to do any more damage by running. It may happen a little bit sooner. And by the right. way, once you get those hip replacements, you won't be able to run anymore um, uh, because you'll damage the hip replacements. So if you want to run and you can put up with the pain, go run and um, come back to me when you can't put up with the pain anymore and we'll have a conversation. So, yeah, I jest, but I think, you know, you, doing something that you're passionate about is really important. You actually do it with your family, too, right? As yeah, the, I do. So that, well, the other thing is I do it kind of smart. Like I, I say I run, but I only run one day a week. Okay. Um, the other five or so days a week that I'm in the gym, I'm on the elliptical trainer. So I'll do 45 minutes to an hour on the elliptical trainer four days or four or five days a week. And then I'll go for a long run anywhere from six to 18 miles one day a week. So when I say I run, I'm doing it knowing that it's not the greatest for my joints and I take the stress off my joints. Yeah. And then, and then my daughter, uh, about uh, a year or so ago, who's uh, 25 and lives down the street from me, um, started getting interested. And uh, she goes for my runs with me once a week, which really helps. That's good. Yeah, really helps. So it's a bonding time. I go running with my son. Uh, I'm assuming these long runs that you're doing weekly are probably on weekends. Yes, Saturday or Sunday morning. And I think it it can't be underestimated, right, the idea of a runner's high and how amazing you feel. Because I try to tell people who don't run, they think you're crazy. And I tell them, no, when you're running, I usually run without music. I don't know about you, but... You, you get to a point where you feel euphoric almost. It, you know, not every moment. Not every right, moment. Right? If, you, if you expect to have a runner's high and you're going to feel great every moment, moment you're uh, deluding yourself. Um, but there absolutely are moments where you feel great. So I actually did a marathon two weeks ago. And I don't do marathons all the time. I try to do one marathon every year or two. And I did one about two weeks ago. And my daughter and I, we, we started together and we said we were going to stay together. And about six or seven miles into it, she said she felt great. And so she took off. And I said, go, go, great. Um, and I couldn't keep up with her. And, you know, she's 30 years younger than I am. So that's understandable. But um, for whatever reason, around mile 23, 24, I felt great. Start kicking in, it right? It kicked in. Something happened. I don't know if it's the adrenaline of knowing that you're close to being done. Or rhabdo. Or rap, yeah, or rhabdomyolysis, <laughs> which you can explain to your audience. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's no, okay. Um, and I caught my daughter at mile 24 and, and I caught her feeling good. Yes. You know, I, I mean, I definitely had that couple miles of that runner's high and I probably took off a little too fast cause I crashed a little bit for the last half mile. Um, but there is that sensation that you get it at moments and it's, it's great. You know, it's what I great. find is when you, you remember only those moments. So sometimes you forget about the painful moments yeah. until you do it again. And you wonder, why am I doing this to myself yes, again? But yes. you seem to only remember those great high moments. Uh, I, well, I remember some of the bad. Like I did New York Marathon two years ago. 
and I hit the wall, the, the, the proverbial wall that the runners talk about. It's the first time that ever happened to me, and I hit that wall at about mile 22, 23. I remember that. Yeah, that sure. was not great, but I finished. I ended up walking and running a little bit at the end, and I finished it. So I, I remember both the good and the bad, but the bad's never bad enough that I don't Go back. Well, I'm sure you guys could talk about running forever. <laughs> you should guys have your own podcast about running. We may running have to, physicians. We may have to. You know, we've actually done a run. Uh, oh, a, see, a run together. Two, two runs. Two runs together. Oh, but right. we will talk about that in another, perhaps another episode. Um, is there anything else that you do for fun like we, that we don't know about you? So um, I do a couple things. Uh, I actually like to cook. My wife tells me the reason I like to run is because I like to cook, and it allows me to cook and eat. And eat. Okay. I do like ah, to I eat. I like that, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I definitely... Uh, 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 indulge a little bit on the weekends um, uh, after my run. So I like to cook. I like to bake, actually. Um, What's your specialty? You know, I, I, I make all sorts of cakes. I, I know that you guys think that's hysterical. So just so you have a baker's hat you wear also. <laughs> I do not have a baker's and hat. An apron. And, apron. <laughs> and I do not have an apron. But I have music in my kitchen, and I use YouTube, and I... I make a pretty awesome chocolate cake. I would pay cake. to see you on, like, the Food Network. We would need a you? visual of this. That'd be I amazing. Yeah? Baking with Adam. Baking with Adam. I made a, a, a coconut cake this weekend that my daughter, who rates my desserts, my running daughter, she rates my desserts. She said that I have tier one and tier two desserts. My coconut cake this weekend, she said, was a tier two. She was so very if, disappointed. Can we, um, tier two. Wow. can we have a contest that the, the first five people that uh, subscribe and rate our show, you'll bake a cake for? Absolutely. Okay. You heard right. it first. Uh, and, I, and they can pick their cake of choice. So iTunes, Spotify, HolyName.org. Yes. yes. Tier one or tier two? No, no, it'll, it'll have to be a tier. It'll have to be a high quality high tier, tier one, one dessert. Yes, a cake to die for, so to speak. Yes. So let's get into the meat of this, right? right. So, um, you know, as the youngest person in the room, um, I think not by that much, by the way, by a lot. All right. Um, you know, you're tied into medicine and practices, so the future of medicine is, you know, is, is really important. Where do you see like medical practice or you know physicians in general going? And Boy. Is there anything new in this? Well, yeah. Heavy duty question. Well, I would have switched, right? We better jump Running, into cooking ten, to the future of medicine. Ten words or less. Yes. You know, I'm I'm worried about the future of medicine. Um, it, it's it's a challenging uh, time uh, for patients and for physicians. I'm trained as a primary care doctor. I right. uh, before I went into administration, I I was in uh, private uh, practice uh, for about 15 years. And I'm worried about um, the future for all doctors, but particularly for primary care doctors. So that species is on the verge of That species extin- is on the verge of yeah. extin- extinction. I never thought of it that way, but that's actually a very good way of putting it. I spend a lot of my time uh, recruiting doctors, and it is really hard to recruit primary care so doctors. Can you go into a little bit about why? Right, we, We're talking from uh, a group of physicians who were the traditional gatekeepers of medicine to now growing number of specialists, dwindling number of primary cares, um, even the rise of mid-levels uh, to take uh, their place in areas that are underserved. I mean, can you at least, because uh, I think we're all interested there, as physicians, the general public, why is this change? Well, uh, it starts by the fact that we use the term gatekeeper, right? I mean, right. that's a terrible term if you're a primary care doctor, and everyone uses it, so I'm not being critical sure. that you use it. I think it comes from the insurance companies and the, and the payers. Um, but who wants to go into a profession to be a gatekeeper? Right. Right. So it starts uh, with the perception of what primary care doctors should be doing versus what the reality, what the reality of, is. of what they are doing. So right. that's, a, that's a problem. Um, I, the other problem is it's, it's a hard lifestyle to, to, to be a primary care doctor the way it's supposed to be done. The way it's supposed to be done, it's, it's a major commitment. You know? um, and, and, and all medicine is, but primary care done the right way is a major commitment. And 
those two things are significant, but I have to tell you, probably the most significant thing is the economics. Right. Right. So the economics, and, and, and not that doctors should cry poverty, and, and doctors do very well financially compared to, to um, you know, the rest of the, the, the workforce in the United States. But um, if you're living in a, in a relatively expensive suburban or urban area, and you want to be a primary care doctor, you better be one of two incomes. Right. Right. Um, and that's true with, with a lot of Americans. We need two-income homes. But understand what primary care doctors went through to get to a point where they are pretty much committed to having to be in a two-income family. So four years of, of college where they better have gotten straight A's or sure. they're not getting into medical school. Four years of medical school and three years of, of residency training. So not as much residency training as, as some specialists goes through, but still 11 years of training. And then you come out and you find out that you're really not compensated the way that cardiologists are or cardiothoracic surgeons or neurosurgeons. And, and or I, people who do procedures, basically. Well, yes, right? and that's, you know, that's a flaw in how the American healthcare system was built. Because primary care doctors don't do procedures. It's a cognitive specialty. It's a cognitive specialty. Right. They, they just are not compensated as well. And I hate to say that doctors are not choosing to go into primary care because of the money, but that's a big part of the reality. I mean, I think the elephant in the room has to be also that the, you know, we, we have medical students here at Holy Name. You talk to them on average, $150,000, $200,000 in debt or more Correct. coming in, right? So one, you talked about the difficulty in recruiting, uh, let's say primary care, but this is a very high cost of living area. And, 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 and as, as are many areas in the country now, sure. right? So on both coasts. Where we, where we live, it's the most expensive. Sure. But if you want to be anywhere near a large city and you want to practice primary care medicine, it is really Extremely challenging. Right. And, and that's why the trend is for primary care doctors to go work for hospitals and other organizations where they can be compensated better um, than just typical uh, traditional fee-for-service. Uh, and, and it's frustrating because I'm, I'm passionate about primary care medicine. Um, I... I've trained at uh, New York Hospital Cornell in the city, and I go back every year to to a, the residency career night, and I meet with the residents, and there's you know 30 to 50 people in the room. Not one of them is going to go into primary care. It's year the quality after of year. life too. Yeah. Like so, you have to see you know, 50 patients to yeah, and and most you know 15 minutes, 10, 15 yeah, minutes. And, and patients don't understand it. that, right? And I and I and I don't want to come across you know that we should have a pity party for doctors because no. you can't compare you know, the economic advantage that a doctor has versus a, a, a you know, a blue-collar worker. So, but on the other hand, you know, if the expectation to survive financially is to see 40, 50 patients a day, which is what many family medicine doctors do, right. how is that good for the patients? How is that good for the doctor? And in our healthcare system, why is seeing a patient and spending 15 or 40 minutes with them, not as valuable as doing a procedure right. that would that takes 15 to 40 minutes. That's and the economics of it. Correct. Right. right. So correct. is that problem mitigated with hospitals, practices? You know, it helps a little bit. It, it absolutely helps a little bit when hospitals um, or other large organizations are willing to compensate primary care doctors because they're able to, to bring in revenue and other sources. Others, right. That will help compensate. It helps a little bit. But it's a shame that that's the way the system should be. The system should not be built in such a way that doctors who are just spending most of their time taking care of patients can't make a living unless they're part of a, a bigger organization. And, 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 and what doctors have done is that they've become parts of bigger organizations, and we've done that at Holy Name. We have about you know, 180 physicians who now actually work for us, and, and that's fine. That's great. But I, I just think it's a shame that, that independent doctors can't make a go of it anymore. 
Well, I have to say, you know, my father uh, was a traditional internist, retired a few years ago, mm -hmm. but, you know, this is before the days of hospice medicine. So it was uh, round in the hospital, see patients in the office, and then go back in the evening and see your patients again. That's your traditional uh, primary care um, uh, methodology and, and, and view. But that's changing, right? So uh, Clinton mentioned the whole idea of work-life balance, but do we see that? Do you think that physicians coming up today are not as dedicated? Or are they just not willing to work as hard? You know, Because I really feel like that whole patient doctor relationship has been eroded right over time yeah so i'm torn like i mean you hear all well, the millennials just don't want to work the right way, you know the way you did or i did um i don't know how much of it is that i mean you know there's no doubt that you know the, the move towards hospitalists has taken over and i don't think we're going back going back right um and what that means is that your primary care doctor will not follow you in the hospital and there's some good things about that there's some real bad things about that as well you know, and, and lifestyle is certainly an issue. Um, but I don't think it's the only issue. I think that if primary care doctors were paid closer to what specialists make, um, then the lifestyle that they would give up would be compensated for Appropriately, financially. financially, right. I mean, when I was in practice, and, you know, I, the days of the giants, right? I'm not, I'm not one of those by any means. But when I was in practice, I saw my inpatients every day in the morning before... Right. Uh, my office started, so I saw anywhere from three to six patients in the, in the hospital every day. I saw my 25 to 35 patients in the office, and then more often than not, I was back, in, back the in the hospital at the end of the day to see either the patients that I saw earlier in the day or new patients that came in, so I was seeing another three to five patients so in the afternoon. it was unfathomable to think that you wouldn't see your own patients. Unfathomable. Right. Unfathomable. Now, right. But now the compensation models were different then. Sure. Right? Um, um, and, and there was no expectations that, that you wouldn't do that. Um, and, and I actually think that if primary care doctors were paid a little differently, they might be willing to, to go back to that model. Um, but the economics just don't work. What people don't understand is the cost of living continues to go up, especially in expensive areas. Yes. Right? But what payers are paying doctors has pretty much stayed flat. Stagnant, right. Right? So I used to say to my... <laughs> I used to uh, I used to say to my uh, my wife I'd say look I can either see more patients or we we could figure out how to you know live on less money live less money right right and so I would see more patients and I would work longer hours smart right man. right right, well, right? Um, and, and <laughs> so I, I don't I don't know how younger doctors deal with that except to know that I know that when I go out and and I'm recruiting a primary care doctor I got a much better shot at recruiting a cardiologist right. a neurologist a pulmonologist a nephrologist than an internal medicine doctor or a family medicine doctor. Now, now we know you got to run soon, but is there anything in the future as far as you know technology or telemedicine? I mean, there's a lot of things coming up, right? That are we need to be aware of. Yeah, so I, I think telemedicine is a is an important advance. I think it um, with uh, increased technology and with expectations of the patients that we serve, using telemedicine will be helpful. I hope it's I hope we use it correctly, and we. And we don't just use it in a way to, to make our patients happy and that we use it to provide them better care. I mean, I want our patients to be happy. Don't get me wrong. But you can make your patients happy in a lot of ways that isn't good for them. Right. That's right? true. No, you sure. know, and I, when, I, when I was in practice, I used to say to my, um, I used to say to my uh, staff, because I, I, I had a big practice. I, there were 10 doctors and we had a staff of 40 people. I would say to my employees, you know, the nurses and, and the support staff, this isn't a shoe store. If the woman comes in and wants to buy the red shoes and the red shoes don't look good on her, sell her the red shoes. Right? It doesn't matter. This, isn't, this is health care. The patient comes in and wants drug A. If drug A is not good for them, don't give it to them. Right. Right? So I'm a little worried that telemedicine may be a little bit what the patient wants, but maybe what's not, what may not be what's best for the patient. Right. If it's overused, 
if it's used appropriately, I think it's a great tool. But I, I, I'm a little nervous about it becoming a tool for patients to get antibiotics when they don't need them. No, as right. an ID doctor, that's a, that, certainly a, a big co- concern. Correct. Yeah, right? sure. Um, so that's just an example of how it can be it can be misused. But I think it is an important it is an important uh, tool for the future. I hope we figure out electronic medical records because we haven't yet. Um, so I hope that we get to a point where electronic medical rest record is not just an onerous task that providers have to get used to, but actually improves the quality of care. I'm not sure whether we're there yet. I with the informal poll of two doctors, I would say no. Well, kind of like my EMR, but you know it, it is there's always a problem with you know. EMRs and charts in, in general, and then you know, know what I hate is it's there's, just there's new guidelines about you know making sure you document this and that. So there's, there's you know there's the workforce is dwindling, but then there's a, a higher demand on that workforce. Yeah, so yeah. I think that's a problem. Well, yeah. So I agree with that completely. Right. Um, and I do think there is an opportunity for EMR. I am worried. You asked about technology. Sure. So, so I'll say this last thing. I Absolutely. am worried that that we become too technologically advanced and doctors don't know how to use their stethoscopes anymore. And doc- the stethoscope? There you oh, go. Okay. There you go. Sorry. Cause you're a young guy. You know, doctors don't know how to do physical exam. And I mean, I, I was taught, uh, and it's been so long since I've been in school that if when you see the patient and you've spoken to them and you haven't figured out the diagnosis from your conversation, right. The likelihood of you figuring it out is extremely low. And then once you examine them, if you haven't figured out the diagnosis, you should hang it up. Yeah. Well, not that you should hang it up, <laughs> but it's going to be a tough diagnosis to right. figure out. And I'm a little worried that we rely on technology to make diagnoses. And it's really, technology should confirm diagnoses. That, that, that not in make. lieu of, though. That's right. correct. Sure. So, so that technology scares me that way a little bit. And with less and less primary care doctors, it's even worse because the specialists, again, I'm a little biased, I think are more directed towards using that technology than primary care doctors were. And it's tunnel vision, too. I, I tell you, when you meet physicians who have trained perhaps in other countries or places of um, less resources, it's amazing, their, their physical exam skills. Correct. Right. It's, 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 uh, well, That's why if you guys ever need help, because I was trained back in the 80s, you know, I'll, we're I'll, coming come, to you. I'll come and 80s. help you figure out some exams. I was two in the 80s. <laughs> 80s was a great time to be alive, I tell you. That's Sugar Hill Gang? That's right. Sugar Hill Gang. Oh, well, that's late 70s, maybe. I don't know. Now, now you're really dating yourself. Right. But, I was uh, thinking like ABBA. You know, Adam, <laughs> Adam, unfortunately, we ran out of time for us to discuss other things like your love of Lord of the Rings, which yes. we'll have to save for another time. That's a whole separate podcast. In fact, yes, it yes. may be a trilogy of podcasts. Wow. <laughs> we want to thank you so much for coming on today, uh, to taking time out of your busy day to talk to us. He's got to run. He's got to run. But uh, in the meantime, to subscribe and hear more episodes, go to holyname.org backslash recommend daily dose. Find us on iTunes and Spotify. In the meantime, I'm your co-host, Dr. Surd Sugger. Dr. Clinton Coleman. Until next time, be well. Check out recent episodes and learn more about these two modern medicine men and their podcast at holyname.org slash recommended daily dose.